0: This morning's reading comes from Luke 7, verses 11 to 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through, through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Uh, before I start, I just want to say that I'm technologically challenged. And uh, between this and this thing, and I'm just going to hopefully it goes smoothly. Uh, my name is Jeff Mojer, and I am an elder in the barn. And I occasionally get the chance to preach, to uh, give Matt a, a week off of rest, and to rest and recharge his preaching energies. I'm a high school history teacher at a local public school. And every summer, I get, I get every summer off to rest and recharge my teaching energies. And I would not have survived 35 years of teaching without that rest. So that's why we give Matt the week off. We are in the middle of a sermon series with the title, Learn from the Humble God. The subtitle is, The Heart and Motivations of Jesus Revealed in All the Scriptures. We won't be covering all the scriptures this morning, but in fact, we are discussing one pericope in the gospel of Luke Yes, that is the will word from last week A pericope a pericope is an extract from a text or in particular a passage of the Bible The title of this sermon Hey, it worked Okay The title of this sermon is similar to the 2004 movie, The Passion of the Christ. But our focus today is not the passion, but the compassion of Jesus. Today we'll look at that compassion that often motivated the heart of the humble God. Let's start with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the way you revealed yourself to those who followed you in the flesh 2,000 years ago. Let us today follow you in a similar manner through the ministry of your spirit and your word. Open our eyes to see you better this morning. Amen. This passage of the Gospel of Luke is a busy period in Jesus' earthly ministry. In chapter 6, he's completed a sermon to a variety, a large, a long sermon to a variety of groups. In chapter 7, he has healed the uh, centurion's son, I want to move on to the next slide (laughs) Oh, I already blew that, okay Yeah, just okay Yeah, okay, sorry In chapter 7 he has healed the centurion's son in the town of Capernaum along the northern coast of the sea of Galilee Now we see Jesus has traveled about 20 plus miles on foot to the south and the west of Capernaum, to the town of Nain, which is not too far from Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. We learn in verse 11 that he is not alone. His disciples are there, and so is a great crowd of people. Based on other uses of the word great, this could mean a thousand or even as many as two thousand people were with Jesus. The funeral procession is called a considerable crowd, suggesting that much of the town was participating. Nain at this time was a small town of of as many as maybe 500 people. The word Nain means pleasant or beautiful. And the town looks over a pleasant pastoral valley. It's probably evening time. Most first century Jewish funerals took place at around 6 o'clock. And Jesus, of course, had been on the road all day coming from Capernaum. There are two crowds. The two crowds are opposites. One is following a prophet and teacher, a miracle worker, with authority and power not seen before. They are excited, upbeat, and curious. And later on they will ask, who is this man? The other crowd is desperate and downtrodden, shaken by the suffering of a neighbor. The worst situation imaginable for a woman, already a widow, and now her only son has died. From the words used, scholars suggest the son was probably only in his teens or 20s. This crowd may have included professional mourners and musicians. The town was gathering with the mother to mourn her son's passing. There are tears, grief, pain, and perhaps other questions. Why? Why has this happened? The two crowds meet at the town gate. One going out to bury the dead, and one coming in to celebrate the living. It's a terrible contrast. What will Jesus do? In our world, funeral processions are usually a line of cars. When we come into contact with one while driving, we stop and we let them quietly pass. If we're on foot, we may take off our hats and lower our heads in respect. Again, what will Jesus do? Perhaps better, okay, (laughs) yeah, okay, perhaps a better question to ask is what does Jesus see, or what is Jesus looking at? Jesus is looking at the widow, probably with great intensity, since the eyewitnesses tell us he was looking at her amidst the many others to look at. But we're told in verse 13 that Jesus was looking at her. He is focused on the one in obvious pain. In the 1990s, there was a motto that became popular among many followers of Jesus. That was WWJD. What would Jesus do? The phrase actually came from a late 19th century novel that enjoyed a resurgence in the 1990s. It encouraged people to consider what action Jesus would take in any situation they encountered. Not a bad idea. But in light of this biblical encounter, maybe we should ask WWJS, or what would Jesus see? Wouldn't it be wonderful to see with the eyes of Jesus? Multiple people looking at the same event often see very different occurrences. 35 years of marriage has taught me that. What would Jesus see? Jesus would see with accuracy and acuity the truth of any situation before him. We seldom see with the clarity that Jesus does. As the Apostle Paul wrote, we see through a glass darkly. If we could see what Jesus sees in a situation, maybe we could do what Jesus would do. So what is Jesus looking at? He's looking at the mother. He is looking at the one in pain. In a crowd of possibly several thousand people, Jesus is focused on the one most suffering. There's a lot to be distracted by. There are people all around the scene at the gate of the town, but Jesus is focused on just the one, the one in pain. I wonder how many times in a day or a week or a month I miss out on seeing people in pain because I'm too distracted by something else. In today's world, we have the technology to be made aware of suffering conditions on the other side of the world in just seconds. It is truly amazing how small the world has become. But at the same time, we can become insulated against the pain as we tumble from story to story on TikTok, or Twitter, or Instagram. Or I am often so focused on a story from BBC News that I miss the suffering student in the front row of my classroom. I go from screen to screen reading about the suffering of those in Mariupol who we prayed for this morning, or Kharkiv. But I don't see the sadness in my colleagues' eyes, or the loneliness of a friend. Jesus does not miss the pain of the one in front of him. And he immediately responds to her pain. So Jesus sees the pain of the suffering widow. What is his response? Jesus feels compassion. He feels compassion. The ESV uses the word compassion. The NIV translates it as his heart went out to her. The message says his heart broke. Jesus' heart was broken by the pain he saw in the widow. American missionary Bob Pierce, after seeing human suffering among children in Asia in the post-World War II world, prayed this, Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. He saw the children's pain. He felt the children's pain. But he did not just leave it at that. He acted. In 1950, he started the Christian Relief Organization called World Vision. And then in 1970, he started another one called Samaritan's Purse. I suspect you're familiar with them. He saw suffering, he reacted with compassion, and then he did something about it. And that is exactly what Jesus did in Luke 7. How does Luke know that Jesus had compassion? What does compassion look like? How did the observers see it? One potential answer is that they had seen this before. Throughout all four Gospels, there are numerous stories that use very similar language. Matthew 9:36 records that Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion on them. Matthew 14 and Mark 6 both say Jesus saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed the sick. And then he fed 5,000 people. Matthew 15, Jesus said, I have compassion on the crowd. He told us 4,000 were fed. Mark 1 uses similar language saying Jesus was moved with pity before healing a leper. Matthew 20, Jesus acted in pity when healing two blind men. And then finally in John 11, records Jesus as being, quote, deeply moved in spirit when he saw Mary and Martha weeping over their dead brother, Lazarus, whom Jesus, of course, then raised from the dead. It's also in the stories that Jesus told us and told his followers. In the famous parable of the two sons, Jesus describes the father's response to his younger son's return with the words, the father saw him and felt compassion. In the story of the good Samaritan, both the priest and the Levite saw the injured man and passed him by on the other side of the road. But the Samaritan saw and had compassion on him. Scripture records other emotions that Jesus experienced, including sadness and anger. Books have been written on the emotional life of Jesus. But the reaction of compassion is not a one-off in Jesus' life. It is his consistent response to human pain and suffering. Dane Ortlund says it it this way in, in his book Gentle and Lowly. The cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Toward it, not away from it. Jesus feels, but it does not stop there. He immediately goes to the suffering widow and tells her, do not weep. He knew how to alleviate her pain. In contrast, when I'm confronted with sin and suffering, my first inclination might be to run away, or hide, or separate myself from it. Jesus' first response was to move toward it. This, of course, goes along with the insult that the Pharisees consistently threw at him as being a friend of sinners. They called him this. Because he was a friend of sinners. Jesus hung out with those that first century Jewish society labeled sinners who were suffering. Do I? Should I? Jesus's move towards sufferers and sinners was usually dictated by his feeling of compassion, as seen in the various scriptures that we quoted earlier. What is compassion? Webster's Dictionary. For those of you who don't know what a dictionary is, I'll explain it to you later. Webster's Dictionary defines compassion as sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with the desire to alleviate it. A definition is helpful because it makes the connection between feeling and action. Jesus feels sympathetic consciousness with the widow of Nain in this morning's story. But as we have read, it does not stop there. He then acted on his compassion. Webster also differentiates between compassion and pity. Pity is defined as sympathetic sorrow for one suffering, distressed, or unhappy. The feeling is the same. But pity does not necessarily include the action to alleviate or lessen the suffering. Compassion does. Jesus acts by alleviating. As mentioned previously, Jesus' first action was with words. He tells the widow, do not weep. I imagine it was said with great tenderness and mercy. He is telling her the truth. It is going to be okay. He then turns his attention to the source of the sadness. This woman has already lost her husband and become a widow. Now she has lost her son, her only son. In Middle Eastern culture at that time, a son meant her present and future life was secure. A son was responsible to care for his mother in, his old, in her old age. Now her only son was gone. Her social security was bankrupt and her life was in jeopardy. Imagining the scene, how, how, do you, how would you or I stop a funeral procession of hundreds of people with thousands of others milling about? And putting myself into it, I decided I would use what I call my coaching whistle. It goes a little like this. It's a particular talent I have. Others might wave their arms or jump up and down. Jesus does not need either of these. He goes up to the bier, the frame on which the corpse is being carried, and does the unthinkable. He touches the bier, and everyone stops. The funeral procession had not stopped while Jesus spoke with the woman, but it does now. Touching anything associated with the dead was ritual defilement in the Jewish tradition. It made one unclean. But Jesus is not made unclean. He is about to make the unclean clean again. He is about to make the dead alive. Jesus speaks the powerful words that will alleviate the suffering and the pain of the widow. Young man, I say to you, arise. Calmly, confidently, and powerfully, the Savior of the widow has spoken. The corpse responds by sitting up and beginning to speak. I wonder what he said the only son is alive but Jesus is not through he then presents the son to his mother the scripture tells us this the focus of the crowd is understandably on the newly alive young man and probably the one who performed the miracle that's who I'd be looking at but Jesus is still focused on the one previously in pain with the presentation of the son to his mother her pain is over and joy has returned. Jesus' action has alleviated her pain. Our focus is on the miracle. But to Jesus, the widow is still the center of the story. The miracle supports his message. She is more important than the miracle. Jesus sees the pain and the suffering of others. He feels compassion toward their situation, and he acts to alleviate it. Many of us identify as followers of Jesus, well, what does this mean? Scripture suggests in many places that to be a follower of Jesus is to take him as our role model, our role model matthew eleven twenty nine quotes Jesus as saying, "Learn from me matthew sixteen twenty four has Jesus saying, "Follow me and in ephesians five one Paul says to be imitators of God. How can we imitate Jesus when it comes to feeling compassion for others? I don't think we can wake up one morning and through sheer willpower decide to be more compassionate today. That's not going to work. One pastor I listened to in preparation for preaching today said, To be a Christian is to be known for compassion. I hope that is true. This morning I'm going to give you four suggestions about how to be more compassionate. I'm no expert. Number one, know who you are. To begin to see suffering and react with compassion begins with understanding your own need. I am a sinner, saved by the grace of Jesus. I believe there is something called having a healthy sense of your own sin. Compassion begins with God. The prophet Isaiah says in 55.7, Let him, the unrighteous man, return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. If we remember that God had compassion on us, we can have compassion on others. Number two, focus on others. Jesus was tired after traveling all day from Capernaum to Nain. Yet he was focused not on his own sore feet, but on the hurting heart of the widow before him. Dane Ortland uses a phrase in his book that's all too applicable for me. He warns against the sinful self-absorption that restricts our own compassion the sinful self-absorption that restricts our own compassion. We have access to so many distractions today that can take us away from the people in our life circles. Let us put aside some of those self-absorptions and focus on others. Number three, soften our judgmental views. In the novel To Kill a Mockingbird, the main protagonist is the father Atticus Finch and the story is told through the eyes of his daughter Scout. At one point in the story Atticus had a teachable moment with his young daughter. Quote, first of all he said, if you can learn a simple trick Scout, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. It's a great image. To climb into his skin and walk around in it. Seldom do I know the whole story of any situation. So I need to learn to hold back my quick and usually incorrect and often uncompassionate judgments. Number four, spend time with those who suffer. The Latin root to the word compassionate is compati, which is defined as to suffer with. To suffer with. Be with those who suffer. Francis Schaeffer once wrote that quote, "Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world." Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world this winter pastor Matt in our vision series encouraged us to be involved in faithful presence faithful presence is the compassion ministry of the barn to find a place where we can find a difference and grow in compassion to be orthodox in our theology but compassionate in our practice If we are engaged in life with those who are suffering, we are being the hands of Jesus, and our own compassion will grow. Two years ago, this past week, Thursday to be exact, my father passed away at the age of 93. He was a a founding member of the barn. We held a celebration of life for him, and it was just that, a celebration of life. But it was also a time of grief and suffering for the family People from the whole expanse of my dad's life came And shared in the suffering of my family We had a tent after the service We had a tent set up out there And uh, my mom was sitting there And obviously in grief And I remember distinctly a whole line of people Including many of you Standing in line to talk to her to say your words of compassion to comfort her to tell a funny story to encourage and support her You were being the hands and feet and heart of Jesus and I thank you for that To conclude the Dutch theologian Henry Nouwen wrote this about compassion Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. The greatest act of compassion in history was Jesus' death on the cross. When the creator God of the universe entered into the condition of being human and saved his people. Let us be followers of Jesus and be known for compassion as he is known for compassion. Let us see others, feel compassion, and act to alleviate it. And we might as well start today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for modeling compassion for all who follow you. Thank you for challenging us to imitate your life. Help us to see, feel, and act in the face of pain and the suffering of others. Make us a people of compassion. Amen.